recent poll, seven out of ten millennials said they would take a pay cut if it meant they could bring their dog to work. <laughs> the other three millennials are already dog walkers. So... That was a uh, wry and witty comment on young America. Take a pay cut to bring your dog to work. Nope. Nope. <laughs> I'd enjoy it. I think sure. it was banned. Although he still stinks, kind of. Still got a bit of the ode to skunk if you get close to him. <laughs> God dang it, what a mishap that was. Well, 1,000 well-wishers turned out at the shrine in Tokyo to catch a glimpse of Japan's Princess Ayoko and her groom on their wedding day. She is surrendering her royal status as she marries for love. Nothing could be more stupid or counterproductive than for humanity than to worship royal families. Um, Good for her. Good for her. According to Japan's imperial law, female members of the royal family forfeit their titles, status, and allowance if they choose to marry someone who does not have royal or aristocratic family ties. The same rule does not apply to male members of the royal family. So on marrying her 32-year-old paramour, who's an employee of a giant shipping company, the princess will renounce her royal status and take a lump sum of $950,000 from the Japanese government for living expenses. What could be stupider than royals? <laughs> ay, ay, ay. So, according to a book in which 4,000-some adult Americans from all 50 states were surveyed at length on uh, sexual issues, it turns out there are significant differences in the sexual fantasies of self-identified Republicans and self-identified Democrats. Both reported fantasizing about the same average frequency, several times per week. I find that Republicans were more likely than Democrats, says the author, to fantasize about a range of activities that involve sex outside of marriage. Think of things like infidelity, orgies, partner <laughs> swapping. God dang it. From 70s style key parties to modern day forms of swinging. Republicans also reported more fantasies with voyeuristic themes, including visiting strip clubs and practicing something known as cuckolding, which involves watching one's partner have sex with someone else. Your fantasy is visiting a strip club? You need better fantasies. Yeah. Well, go once or twice. That'll cure that. Uh, By contrast, self-identified Democrats were more likely than Republicans to fantasize about almost the entire spectrum of bondage, discipline, and sadomasochistic activities from bondage to spanking to dominant submission play. The largest Democrat-Republican divide on the BDSM spectrum was in masochism, which involves deriving pleasure from the experience of pain. I have no interest in being tied up or tying anyone up. No, but you are a furry. Or was I not (laughs) supposed to mention that on the air? Uh, So uh, the question asked is, why do Republicans seem to be drawn to non-monogamy and Democrats to power play in their sexual fantasies? I'll bet a a bunch of you are are way ahead of us already. Um, You know, it might be tempting, writes the author, to see this as a revealing fundamental difference in their sexual psychology. But if you dig a a little deeper, and, and you don't have to dig very deep to me, you find that some of the activities that turn Republicans and Democrats on are vastly different. Um, but it's that, yeah, boy, then it gets really, really wordy. But the long and short of it is mon- non-monogamous and voyeuristic acts for Republicans probably stem from the fact that sex outside of marriage and multi-partner sex are big no-nos. 
among people who tend to hold those political beliefs. Oh, I see. If you're Democrat, you're already doing it. Probably already had an orgy by now. Right, or you're not married. For breakfast. Right. Um, uh, the party Your pre-breakfast can... orgy you have every day. Oh, is it already man. Tuesday? Exactly. Oh, boy. oh, this is about the orgy. Yeah. I remember she was like totally sweating and oiled up. Oh, that's the worst advertisement for an orgy I've ever heard. Was that half with the governor of California, or was that a bad dream? <laughs> uh, anyway, Republicans make traditional marriage one of the cornerstones of its official platform, and I just think it's, you know, the way a lot of Republicans swing. Nothing makes us want to try something like being told you can't do it. Huh. That's why taboos, no matter what they are, often become turn-ons, and that same instinct may also help to explain. Tell me if you buy this uh, logic or this argument. May explain in part the appeal of BDSM to Democrats. Within the Democratic Party, much of what drives political agenda is the view that inequality is the source of a wide range of social problems. Regularly seen the party platform recently made multiple mentions of the need to level the playing field. They, they want to alter the rules to yield equal outcomes, which is something I find abhorrent. But it's not a stretch then to suggest that playing with power differentials, especially in the BDSM setting where men and women might not appear to be on equal footing and where the lines of sexual consent might not always be explicit, is taboo in many democratic circles. The idea of getting tied up and being powerless is uh, very, very naughty for a Democrat, I guess. Huh. Comes from the longstanding principle of psychology known as reactance, which stipulates that when our freedom is threatened and we're told we can't do something, we want to do it even more, as every parent on Earth understands. <laughs> uh, so that's, you know, I think that's probably there's probably a lot of truth to that. Plus, you know, it, I tell you what. I'll leave me out of this. I will just say that if you have a particular interest in something, and it's a, a, a fantasy, sexually, and then you end up with somebody who's like, yeah, cool, and you do it twice a week, it's not a fantasy anymore. It's like doing a radio show being a fantasy for me. There's no point. Um, so, sure, it's the forbidden fruit. Semi-obvious, right? So now I got you tied up. What am I supposed to do now? That's what I would say. Incidentally. I, I don't get this. Now what do I do? Go bowling with my friends? <laughs> Incidentally, about 1 in 10 Republicans and 1 in 10 Democrats report having fantasized about a politician. Wow. It's worth noting that these fantasies sometimes involve reaching across the aisle. <laughs> when presented with a list of 25 politicians... Uh, 17% of Republicans reported fantasizing about a Democrat, while 27% of Democrats reported fantasizing about Republicans. And that shows you something, doesn't it? I don't know. No, it doesn't. Uh, the single most commonly fantasized about politician among both parties was the same. Can you name that politician? Male or female? Female. Living. Living female. Yes. Nancy Pelosi? Oh, Lord. Sarah Palin. Oh, well, come on now. Republicans. So all you did was name the hottest person. Much. What, what you you figured it out. <laughs> what, what, why don't you tell people who'd have fantasies about it? <laughs> Republicans were much more likely to have Palin fantasies than Democrats. Following Palin, the most frequently mentioned politicians in Republicans' fantasies were John F. Kennedy. Also attractive and young. Bill Clinton. Well, he's willing. You know that. Now we're back. And, and he doesn't young. mind using, you know, toys. Nikki Haley, cute gal. After Palin, 
who was Democrats' first choice. Democrats fantasized about Barack Obama. Sure, you can have my number, baby. <laughs> well done, Michael. Bill Clinton and and Hillary Clinton. Call me anytime. I find that hard to Great work. Scott. How about inter- and, uh, Angela Merkel? I kind of got a thing for her. <laughs> I get Bill Clinton reaching across the aisle, showing up on both people's lists. Huh? <laughs> How about that? I want Angela Merkel to tie me up and lecture me angrily in German. Is that wrong? <laughs> So Trump today, out of nowhere, announced that he's going to end birthright citizenship, which I'm all for. Just he can't do it. We'll talk to a professor of law, a constitutional expert, uh, his views on this. How possible is it? This is a good idea in a moment. Okay, coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the the nation. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Now, how ridiculous. We're the only country in the world where a person comes in, has a baby, and the baby is essentially a citizen of the United States for 85 years with all of those benefits. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it has to end. Well, it is ridiculous, and it has to end, but you can't end it. So that's the end of the story. Well, perhaps not. The president talking about birthright citizenship, what it means, what it doesn't mean, what it ought to mean. And uh, to further the discussion, we've invited Dr. John Eastman to join us. Dr. Eastman's a professor at Chapman University Fowler School of Law, uh, a lecturer, a thinker, writer. He also clerked for Clarence Thomas uh, on the Supreme Court, which is quite an honor. Uh, Dr. Eastman, how are you, sir? I'm well. How are you doing today? Excellent. Thank you. Uh, First, for folks who are not steeped in constitutional history, can you talk a little bit about how the 14th Amendment came to be, why it came to be? Well, the 14th Amendment is one of the so-called Civil War Amendments, uh, and and this one in particular was designed to overturn the uh, ignominious uh, Supreme Court decision in Dred Scott that said African Americans can't be citizens. And it says uh, it was passed in 1868, and it says all persons born or naturalized in the United States, that's the birth part, um, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States. Um, and, and this created automatic citizenship for the African-American former slaves, uh, but also anybody who was born here and subject to our jurisdiction. Okay. Well, let's just go ahead and, and stipulate, as they say in the courts, um, that everybody understands the importance and the value of the 14th Amendment for the freed slaves and, and, and God bless Abraham Lincoln and the Congress. Um, on the other hand, how it applies in the modern day is, is very different. Why don't we go there next? Well, sure. The, the, the big fight is over what that phrase subject to the jurisdiction means. And quite frankly, it means something different in common parlance today than it meant at the time. Uh, subject to the jurisdiction today immediately thinks, are you subject to our laws? Um, and therefore, everybody that's born here, maybe maybe not diplomats and foreign armies who have invaded, but anybody else are subject to our laws, therefore they're subject to our jurisdiction, and therefore their kids are automatic citizens. But that's not the understanding of the phrase in 1868. Um, the, 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 the phrase then had two meanings. Were you subject to our complete jurisdiction, such as you owe allegiance to the country, or were you subject to what they called the mere partial or territorial jurisdiction? That meant you had to comply with the laws all within our boundaries, but, but didn't owe any allegiance to the country. The best way I can explain this is imagine a British citizen comes over here as a tourist, 
He has to comply with our traffic laws. He has to drive on the right side of the road, not the left. But he doesn't owe allegiance to the country. He's just here as a visitor, as a guest. Uh, we don't we don't draft him into our army, and we don't prosecute him for treason if he takes up arms against us. So we, you know, I'm sure there are other laws that he would be violating. We could charge him with. Um, but that's that's the understanding at the time, and it, we don't have to speculate about that. The author of the language was asked point blank: Are the are, are Native Americans, the Indian was the word they used at the time, are the Indians going to be automatic citizens? And he said, no, this means complete jurisdiction. They owe allegiance to their tribe, and so even though they are subject to our laws, our territorial jurisdiction, they're not automatic citizens. Well, if that was true for the Native Americans at the time who were, you know, domestic sovereigns, it's clearly true for for foreign nationals who continue to owe allegiance to their home country uh, while they're temporarily visiting here. And that's even more true for people who are not legally authorized to be here in the first place. So when you have a welfare state, though, people get across the border, get a baby born, and we have chain migration and, and use it for that. So how do we stop that? Well, I think President Trump's executive order is designed to stop that. It's designed to enforce the law as written and originally understood not how many people over the last couple of decades have, have erroneously thought it meant. Um, and Congress could do this as well. I, you know, it could, it could say, you know, we've been acting like folks were citizens for a long time. All right, we're going to confer citizenship on them, but by virtue of our power over naturalization in Article One, not because they already have it under the 14th Amendment. And then we are going to correct that going forward so we get the right understanding and we can therefore adjust our immigration policy appropriately. Well, I agree with you completely, but something tells me there's, uh, there's case law that says otherwise. There's not. There's not a single Supreme Court case and no lower court case that says otherwise. You're kidding. The only actual holding on this is a case in 1884 called Elk versus Wilkins. It was a a Native American who had been born on U.S. soil, and he claimed U.S. citizenship. And the Supreme Court held that because he continued to owe allegiance to his tribe, even though the tribe was a domestic dependent sovereign, he was not subject to the complete jurisdiction and therefore was not a citizen. What gets confusing is in the late 1890s, a case called Wong Kim Ark, a child of Chinese immigrants, um, left the United States and then upon his return claimed he was a citizen and he was legally entitled to return. And the Supreme Court agreed. But they went out of their way in that case to note that his parents were lawfully domiciled here. They weren't just here temporarily. It's temporary visitors they were lawfully domiciled here they had made this their home and as as and and the united states had accepted them as lawfully domiciled here we didn't let them become citizens because of a bad uh, treaty that we had entered into with the emperor of china but they did as much to become part of our community our political community as they were allowed to do and the supreme court held that child um, was a automatic citizen. So how but, in the world did we get to the state of affairs where a Chinese national can land at LAX, birth a child, and fly back the next day and have an American citizen? And the natural follow-up question to that, can the president actually do anything about that with an executive order? Well, he can. Uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to pinpoint where this change understanding occurred. In the 1920s, Congress passed a law giving Indians citizenship, that wouldn't have been necessary if they were already citizens. There were, there were guest workers here who left after the Great Depression with their kids. Nobody claimed they were citizens. It's not till the late 1960s 
that that somehow this idea starts getting uh, taking root. But it wasn't by any court decision. It wasn't by any act of Congress. It just kind of happened. I think it may have been something as simple and crazy as you know, a change in a form down in the passport office. Um, you know, they used to require knowledge about what your parents' status were in order for you to claim citizenship, even if you were born here. And then all of a sudden they dropped that set of questions on the passport form. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to pinpoint where the error began, but it's clearly an error. Interesting. Well, I certainly think that if the president were to sign such an executive order, and I hope it would be carefully prepared, um, this would be in the Supreme Court pretty quickly. I, I, I would think, and you know, uh, you've, you've got you've got um, uh, sympathetic plaintiff issues of people that our own government has been pr- uh, telling them we're going to treat you as citizens. We ought not to pull the rug out from under those folks. But it's extremely important on a going forward basis that we get this corrected and, and, and the Constitution properly interpreted so that we then restore the power to Congress to, dis, to decide as a matter of policy how much above the constitutional floor we want to grant citizenship uh, and, you know, and, and how much not. But that's a policy judgment that our Constitution leaves to Congress, and we ought, ought not to let this mistaken interpretation of the 14th Amendment take that power away from Congress. So you clerked for for Clarence Thomas, who famously almost never talks um, behind closed doors. Does he talk more, or does he just sit there silent also? Oh, no. He's he's one of the most gregarious people I've ever met in my life. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Why his style there at the court? Well, you know, it's uh, it's, it's oftentimes difficult to actually have a question that compels... Um, uh, uh, you know, outcome determinative answers. When when there is such a question, he'll ask it. But he he tends not to be one that just plays the game just to be talking for talking's sake. Interesting. Interesting. Dr. John Eastman, professor at Chapman University's Fowler School of Law. Uh, Dr. Eastman really enjoyed the, the chat. Very stimulating and well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our Take pleasure. Care. Man, put him in our Rolodex. Yeah, huh? no kidding. Giant gold star. You know what's funny is if I'm at a, a seminar or a meeting or whatever, I almost never ask questions. I have found that if I'm thinking of questions, I'm not taking in the information. I'm too distracted by my own question and how to phrase it and how it might go over and stuff like that. I think way too much. And so I've just decided nine times out of ten, I'll just sit there and listen. So I get why Clarence Thomas does that. A lot I of people would try to portray him as stupid or uninformed or something like that. I don't think that's yeah, the case at all. I don't ask questions in meetings because I'm not paying any attention to what anybody's saying, and that's, I have no idea what's going on. That's another way to approach it. And so there's no way I could ask a question that would be about the subject matter because I don't even know what the subject matter is. You would all, be more likely to expose your own lack yeah, exactly. of attention paying than yeah. a further right. discussion in any right. sort of meeting. Remain silent, way. be thought a fool, center, well, center. What time's lunch? I might ask that mm. question. What's coming up in your news, Marshall? Well, Bernie Sanders jump into President Trump's defense today. Bad, bad news for the world's animals. And what a night for the Golden State Warriors coming up. I'm yeah. glad you're doing the animal story, Marshall. I'm hot to trot for that one myself. Hot to trot like a horse? No, like a rhino. Oh, gotcha. So get or a to- tiger. So Trump can do this. Like a okay. tiger riding a rhino. Learned something today from that guy we just talked to? The lack of case history is is the blockbuster headline. How it's that something is going to happen on this. Exciting. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Golden 
State Warriors are ridiculous, as you're about to hear in the news, and uh, their biggest problem is going to be not getting so bored with right. the season because it's so long. Focus, dedication, motivation, let's get mastication. To, <laughs> let's get to the news now, Marshall. Folks. Well, President Trump is defending himself after being accused of fueling the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. Trump saying in a Fox News interview, it's ridiculous to link him to the synagogue shooting in any way because of his own Jewish ties and support. His first daughter, Ivanka Trump, and her husband are Jewish. Trump and uh, the uh, First Lady, the First Family, are looking forward to visiting Pittsburgh later on today. Well, I'm just going to pay my respects. I'm also going to the hospital to see the officers and uh, some of the people that were so badly hurt. So, And I really look forward to going. Trump has also been strongly, some would say excessively, Mm pro-Israel. Yes. So come on now. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders says he does not fault the president for the actions of the synagogue shooter. The Washington Examiner, quoting Sanders, is saying, I am not going to sit here and blame the president for Saturday's deadly mass shooting, period. Some Trump critics have been suggesting that the president's rhetoric has contributed to a growing sense of anger here in the U.S. But the majority of legitimate pundits that I follow have not blamed him. Um, right. it, it seems like it's made up by the media that's just trying to start a fight. It's not only made up, but flogged segment after segment after segment for the last several days. God, I was watching, it's inescapable. I was watching Face the Nation, and the first guest that John Dickerson had on, some Republican senator, he asked him nine different ways. But doesn't the president have some blame for this and just nine different he kept going back to it to try to get him to say something right that they could say look there's a fight the president's to blame jesus well and the other thing and this is kind of an esoteric point i guess but you know if if you keep delivering the message that this violence clearly flows from what the president says then at some point particularly more fevered minds are going to think well, they keep saying over and over again that, that the president's speech justifies violence or resisting the president's speech justifies violence. So I guess I'm justified in violence. Whereas our point would be, no, nothing justifies violence. It, it, it doesn't matter what anybody says. Your cause is not so important. You get to hurt people. I don't give a frig what Maxine Waters says. You don't get to confront people in restaurants and make them miserable and hurt them. I don't care what Donald Trump says. You don't get to hurt anybody. Let's have that message over and over again, John Dickerson, you headline-seeking whore punk. Brent Hume said on Fox, he said, one of the problems we've, we've got is the president thinks everything's about him, and the press thinks everything's about him. Yeah, the press agrees. Yeah. Meanwhile, we've got the new living plant report, planet report, that's just been released, and it contains some really bad news for many of the animal species on Earth. The new report from the World Wildlife Fund says that there was a 60% decline among almost 17,000 various wildlife populations between 1970 and 2014. Ah, we need like four animals. Dogs, cats, pigs, horses, please, horses and pigs. That's it. That's all we need, really. Settled. That, that's a big Wait drop. a minute. How about a bird? Just one kind of bird. Big drop caused by deforestation, climate change, and an increase in pollution. The WWF calling for an international treaty to protect wildlife and deal with the crisis. I have a lot of sympathy for that story, but that's not the one I thought you were going to tell. China, inexplicably, the dirty red communist horde, has lifted restrictions on importing products made from tigers and rhinos. 
China is the, I mean, as, as the U.S. is to illegal drugs, China is to poaching and murdering beautiful wild animals for phony, stupid Asian boner pills. China. Long life salves you rub on yourself. It's absolutely prehistoric, superstitious stupidity that's having a devastating effect on a number of breeds of animals. And I can't even imagine what they were thinking lifting those restrictions. Trying to kowtow to their, their ignorant, you know, middle-aged population, I guess. Middle-ages population, not middle-aged. Wow. Meanwhile, the Golden State Warriors forward, Clay Thompson, had a huge night in Monday night's 149-124 to 124 win over the Bulls. Thompson setting a new NBA record. Fourteen three-pointers breaking Steph Curry's record of 13 three-pointers in a well, single game. That's only half the story. He did and it in 27 minutes. Yes. To, he only played 27 minutes. Yes. To take 14 three-point shots is a hell of a lot of shooting. To make 14? That's ridiculous. And the Warriors score 92 points and a half. That's a franchise record. 92 on and a half. Fire. Wow. 92. They've nice got to drop 200 on somebody. They yeah, have to. I know. Scoring 200 has got to be their goal. That's what's got to keep them interested. When they go to a bad team that's coming off a back-to-back, you got to try to score 200 <laughs> oh, on them. Wow. Wow. Kick them when they're down. Clay had uh, 22 points in the first quarter. That's a good quarter. Yep. yep. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips. The Armstrong and Getty Show, the conscience of the nation. Yep. And a lot of the time, he kind of stands around and moves the ball about as Steph Curry and and Kevin Durant and and others uh, get the lion's share of the points. Well, he's considered the best defender on the team. That's what he's doing most of the time. It takes a lot of energy to do that. It's amazing that a team could be that much better the best, than everybody else. The best defender on a team shouldn't score 54 points. That should never happen. It's amazing. Uh, what direction do you want to go up? Sideways? Let's see. I live northeast of here, so... Ah, <laughs> uh, comments on the big caravan. Also, insider information on weirdos driving around with hostile pictures on their vans. Profiling government lists of dangerous people in the wake of the recent ugliness. Yeah. Some interesting like stuff. That pipe bomb guy seemed like the sort of guy we should have picked up a long time ago, doesn't he? In retrospect... You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. In California. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Ladies and gentlemen, the head coach of the Oklahoma State University football squad, Mike Gundy. Criticism where? From where? Twitter, radio. Yeah, oh, I give a rat's about Twitter. It's a platform for people that are sitting home trolling an unemployment check, sitting in front of a keyboard. Social media and Twitter is what's destroying this country anyway. So that's how I feel about it, from politics to sports to whatever. It gives people a platform to bitch, and then other people are, like, needling it, and they're sitting at home, and they're late on a payment. So, anyway, that's how I feel. (laughs) Wow, taking shots at the poor credit rated. (laughs) And he goes on a little bit longer than that, but um, talking about he doesn't care what people say on Twitter, nor should you. I thought that was a good, uh, good rant. 
He is right that social media is ruining America. There are a number of studies that show it is really a problem. Well, and he was ready to throw in a number of fart noises, too, which was really... Yeah. Party fart primary. Really elevating. Now... I don't appreciate that line of humor. Mike Gundy is uh, not an unknown quantity to this show. That was a great rant. This is probably Mike's greatest rant. Are you kidding me? number of years ago. Where are we at in society today? After me, I'm a man. I'm 40. I'm not. A, I'm not a kid. Write something about me or our coach. Write about a kid that does everything right, that's heart's broken, and then say that the coach has said he was scared. That ain't true. Oh, uh, what? I, I, Where's I, the good part? You told I, I. I had 30 seconds. That's oh, the, that's a good point. <laughs> that's the clip that I found. <laughs> that's that's the thing where they were criticizing his quarterback, who was like 18 years old. And he said, they said he was fat! Fat! And that's where that fat clip comes from. The great Mike Gundy. Fat! On my 40th birthday, I'm going to be carrying around a boombox that is just nothing but him shouting, I'm a man! I'm 40! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy. <laughs> Here's your headline. Mike Gundy's rant, a fiery fart noise defense of Oklahoma State. <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> we need more of that. Do we? Yes. And how would that help? <laughs> less less anger, less Trump, more college football coaches making fart noises. It's a pressure release, if you will. <laughs> oh, boy. Well played. <laughs> well played. Completely unforgivable, but well played. So, I don't know if I want to get into that. There's not a lot of time. Uh, The Gab.com platform, it's an alternate to Twitter. And the idea of Gab... Have you ever been on it? um, No, although we've had a number of listeners say we should get on it. Mm. The idea of Gab was that the only thing they would censor were threats. They They wouldn't have that. Otherwise, it was a completely open forum. If you are a communist... Pitch communism. If you are a white supremacist, pitch white supremacy. Boy, it's amazing. If you are a black supremacist or a whatever, go ahead. It's none of our business. It's amazing how important it is to be first in with an idea because it sounds like it's, well, it's exactly what Twitter is. Right. Only more open. <clears throat> and I've never used it. I don't hear about it much just because Twitter did it first. Yeah, it's it's now the reputation in the mainstream media is that it is a uh, a refuge for white supremacists and and the one dude who uh, shot up the um, the synagogue was on there and and spouted all sorts of anti-Semitic hate and so um, well, Gab it, has become too hot to handle and it's been dropped by uh, those that hosted it and those that process payments etc. It becomes kind of this this weird quagmire where you end up with like you said because Twitter was first to market. Anybody who is not pitching those really extreme things that are being allowed, they'll just use Twitter. So you end up with this platform that is essentially just the only people that are using it are the people who aren't getting on Twitter. And then if you get on Gab just because, like I do, I, I like the idea of you can say practically anything. Right. Um, I just like that as a philosophy. But you get branded as that sort of person because well, that's where those sorts of people go right exactly right and the the problem with twitter and facebook and google and the rest of them i'm not going to say anything more outrageous than pugs are ugly right well they've they've banned like dennis prager videos on twitter because they're too controversial because they're hateful by their starkly left-leaning uh, standards 
And so this gab popped up. And um, uh, let's see, I'm quoting the Mercury News here, the uh, San Jose Mercury News. Um, a social media platform that has become a haven for white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and other adherents to extreme ideologies that have found themselves increasingly unwelcome on Twitter and Facebook. Um, the, unfortunately, that's also true of various people who have called for more strict uh, enforcement of in, uh, immigration laws and that sort of thing. Um, because, yeah, the way out there wackadoos are absolutely there. Um, but... Uh, so, uh, essentially, what's uncomfortable for me is we have two choices. Well, we don't have two choices anymore. Um, I would say mainstream to left is Twitter, and then anybody who doesn't fit that description goes to Gab, but then the weirdos on Gab get it shut down. Weirdos by my standards. So, stripper pipe bomb guy said some pretty strong things on Twitter that didn't get him banned at the time, even though it was brought to their attention. I mean, some politicians said, hey, look, take a look at this. He's threatening me. And Twitter said, no, that doesn't violate our policy. Now they say it did, that they made a mistake in retrospect, which I find interesting. That just sounds like covering your ass. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and an expert uh, who is going to remain anonymous... Um. Give us a bunch of information about how after John Hinckley Jr. Uh, shot Reagan, the Secret Service and others worked in creating profiles, profiling what an assassin would look like. This included normal things like criminal background checks, personal references, but it went deeper. Secret Service agents became amateur psychologists with attempts at figuring out these subjects. Everything from training, like military training, for instance, to travel habits were factored in. From family to finances, it's all in. It's by far the most comprehensive single report that a Secret Service agent produces in his career. It can be from 12 to 30 pages, generally. Such a person is, of course, added to their list and can forget ever getting anywhere close to a Secret Service protectee. I remember the keywords to the reports I wrote were, quote, at this time to cover my ass in the event the subject went and did something stupid tomorrow. And he mentions that the crosshairs on a picture is a freedom of speech issue, but that doesn't mean the government can't talk to you about it and put you on a separate list. Right. Um, and then he gets into, you know, if it's a, con- a conditional threat, like if POTUS does blank, then I'll do blank to him or her. That doesn't constitute a threat legally for prosecution. It's a semantic issue for lawyers. Way above my pay grade, he says. Very few times has a prosecution ever been made by someone even making direct threat against POTUS. There has to be a lot more than just words for the U.S. Attorney's Office to sit up and take notice, hence the amateur psychologist thingy. Well, as we heard yesterday, that it's difficult to get any prosecutor to take this on. If you come forward and say, hey, I got a guy driving around in a van, uh, threatening on Twitter, you got pictures of a politician with crosshairs, no prosecutor's ever going to take that up. Right. Well, and, and the federal prosecutor's offices have a reputation among law enforcement that Anything more than about an 18-inch putt, they'll pass on. They have an incredible batting average because they only take swings at really, really fat pitches. That's why Comey wrote that book, Chicken S, where he said they're all a bunch of chicken S's around the country. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. Is that the name of the book? Yeah. It's a hell of a title. It is. But that was his point. (laughs) What if you... I actually agree with him on that point. You know, be a little more bold. Lose some now and then. Right. Go for it. What if you were an expert on chicken dung and you wrote a book and people got confused and bought Comey's book all the time? That would be uncomfortable. You'd be really unhappy. Well, right. Right. If I'm, if I'm an ep- expert on chicken ass, I don't, I don't write a book with that title. Mm. I don't expect to sell that many. 
You hail from farm country. What's the most objectionable animal Chicken. poo? Chicken is. Yeah. Yeah. Hogs second? Hogs right up there. It smells the worst. But yeah, it's Chicken's terrible. the grossest. Hog farms are horrific. Horse and cattle, mostly because of their diet's not that big a deal, though. Mm. I don't mind it at all. Like, I rub a little behind my ears. <laughs> Farmersonly.com. Um, uh, pigs <laughs> pigs uh, output is horrific, and yet it yields a delicious, delicious animal. Yeah. Makes you stop and think, doesn't it? <laughs> does it? It really does. Does it? <clears throat> All right. Things we will not be getting to today because we're far, far too busy, probably, is any stupid arguing about the president going to Pittsburgh to console the citizens of that fine area. You know, in Bob Woodward's book, which nobody talks about anymore after the first weekend came out, there's a, a long chunk in there about how tough it was on Trump when he first became president and soldiers would die and he had to make the phone call and how it had touched him more than anything anybody had ever seen in his life and all that sort of stuff. How he was really rattled by that. Of course, nobody in the press talked about that. No, that part of the book was ignored completely. Right. <laughs> so he's, he's according to Bob Woodward, really bothered by this stuff. Yeah. Which any normal human being would be. Sure. Well, if you get the award-winning fourth hour of the show, please stay tuned for China with a new weapon they haven't used in the trade war yet. That they might. And much more. How if about you don't the billionaire the... fight going on in San Francisco? Billionaire fight! Billionaire fight! How's that play out when you got a couple of billionaires throwing haymakers? Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show.